0: You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, ChristianHumanist.org. Hello listeners, welcome to Christian Humanist Profiles. I'm Charles Hackney, Associate Professor of Psychology at Briarcrest College and Seminary in Caronport, Saskatchewan. With me today is Rusty Reno, former Professor of Theology and Ethics at Creighton University, now Editor of First Things and prolific author. How are you doing today, sir? Oh, I'm I'm doing really well. All right. We are here today talking about Dr. Reno's most recent book, uh, Resurrecting the Idea of a Christian Society, published in 2016 by Regnery Faith. A link to the publisher's website will be in the show notes, uh, so you can click on that and uh, purchase a copy. Uh, In this book, uh, Dr. Reno traces our current social, economic, and political crises to their origins in a deeper religious conflict and claims that it is in fact possible for America, and one might hope, maybe, possibly, Canada, uh, to restore Christianity as our uh, society's moral center point. Uh, So Dr. Reno, uh, uh, to begin with, uh, the title of your book, Resurrecting the Idea of a Christian Society, uh, is a direct reference to T.S. Eliot's 1939 essay, The Idea of a Christian Society. Uh, Could you tell us a bit about how Eliot's essay forms a background to your book?
1: You know, Eliot helped me see that a neutral society is a way station between between a certain kind of spiritual orientation and another kind of spiritual orientation. And it kind of goes back to St. Augustine's idea that um, we are what we love and just as individuals are either have some focal point for their love, so also that's the case for us collectively in society. And Eliot thought that liberal democracy, deceived itself into thinking it can be neutral with respect to religious questions, and that um, although the government, the state, certainly can, can be neutral, that society as a whole has a certain orientation, and that it has historically, in the West, had a Christian orientation, and he was writing in the late 1930s with the specter of Nazism and fascism, which he thought suggested another alternative, which is a pagan orientation. Now we don't face the same dire choice that Europeans faced in the 1930s, but I do think that there's a widespread materialist assumption in our society today, and that there are presiding pagan gods, and I see them as the small smiling gods of health, wealth, and pleasure. And It does seem to me that we are facing a choice as a society as to whether we will organize our public life around something like a Christian idea of human flourishing or something that's governed more by these hearth gods of health, wealth and pleasure.
0: Uh... Well, uh, so on this idea of uh, health, wealth, and pleasure, and uh, flourishing, so uh, as a psychologist, uh, I have uh, seen how our ideas in the, the field, and uh, that's also this has also been part of uh, my scholarly work, uh, how our, our ideas about mental health and flourishing are guided, either explicitly or implicitly, uh, by some of the same ideas that you describe, uh, the goals of self-definition, self-gratification, um, uh, Philip Cushman uh, talks about the uh, the bounded, masterful self, uh, argues that the uh, uh, the attempt to create this modern self uh, has instead produced an empty self uh, with the uh, meaninglessness, or what Victor Frankl called the existential vacuum. and uh, Narcissism, uh, Gene Twenge uh Christopher Lasher talked about this. Uh, psychological outcomes, um, or I could talk about uh, Barry Schwartz's work on the uh, tyranny of choice, Um, So in your book, you make some similar arguments about political and cultural outcomes. So I focus on psychological outcomes. You're talking about political Mm. and cultural outcomes uh, of this modern vision of the good life. Uh, How do you see our society's dominant definitions of flourishing uh, being connected to our current social troubles?
1: I think that we we have a view that we're happiest when we We get get to to be 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 whomever we wish to be. be. Um, so it's a, maybe it's an existentialist idea, but I think this notion of bounded self-mastery is important, which is that people, they accept the gods of health, wealth, and pleasure. So you go to the gym in the morning, you work all day to serve the wealth god to get ahead in your career, go to the wine bar in the evening and placate the pleasure god. And but. In all of that, those, one, of the, one of the appeals of these gods is they don't make strong demands on our souls, and so it leaves us kind of with an inner sanctum where we can, where we imagine we can kind of craft our own unique, distinctive identity. And but the upshot of that is actually we become more vulnerable to, you know, the coercion of social the social consensus. Because freedom, as I tried to argue in this book, depends upon having a strong place to stand to work <coughs> down the currents of our time. You know, St. Paul talks about the principalities and powers that hold us in a thrall. You know, obviously they're different in our time than they were in the ancient world, than they were in the medieval world than they were or even a hundred years ago. But You know, I think many young people today feel acutely their vulnerability to, um, uh, you know, their peer opinion. One of the effects of social media, I think, has been to make people more exposed, actually. So it's paradoxical, you can clump with the like minded on social media, but you're also always vulnerable to the trolls that you know, it's interesting that that's the term that gets used hiding under the bridges, right. bridges ready to assault you. Right. So so this sense of vulnerability, um, I think, is pretty acute. Uh, so I think that truth freedom really requires people to have strong loyalties, loves, and convictions. And this is something that our societies today refuse to deliver to us. In fact, the argument is strong convictions are going to make life worse and better. You're going to want to be enslaved to uh, or even worse, you're gonna become a judgmental person who's gonna make other people's lives miserable because your strong beliefs are gonna somehow crowd in on that inner sanctum of bounded self-mastery. So I think the dynamic here is um, one of enervation. people are um and it is this lack of meaning. It's not that there's not, people do, you know, save the world ecology, recycling, you know, there's lots of efforts by people to find things to be committed to, and yeah, I think that's, that's good, good, and that's, that's something that should encourage. But, but typically, typically, these, these are, are not sort of deeply soul engrossing activities. activities. They don't make truth demands on us, if you will, at the same scale that Christianity does, or for in any other
0: religion. I wonder if uh, sort of that paradoxical nature has anything to do with. Uh, the, you know, tremendous hostility that gets expressed on uh, social media. Um, the, um, you know, what you talk about, the, uh, the, the vulnerability and the, the sense of being exposed and uh, tying that into uh, the, the narcissism connection, you, uh, it's often been noted, and I'm appealing again to Gene uh, Twenge's uh, research in this area, uh, that one of the appeals of being very active in social media uh, is that it fosters um, it, it fosters a positive sense of self. In that uh, I'm trying to get everybody to pay attention to me, uh, so it, it cultivates this grandiose uh, self-concept. Look how many followers I have. People are hanging on my, my every word. Uh, it's important that uh, they all listen to what I have to say, uh, but. Uh, the kind of self concept that uh this sort of activity generates uh is not a positive self concept that's grounded in actual accomplishment uh so it's an insecure positive self concept uh so uh, narcissism we we see associated with greater aggression and hostility mm. uh, the, the idea that you know uh well if if my self esteem is grounded in the fact that I've actually done something. Uh, and accomplish something. If I come along with somebody who doesn't have a positive view of me, well, you know, I have something to look to to say that that person's wrong, but uh, if I have nothing uh, other than the fact that, you know, I've got a lot of Twitter followers or something like that, uh, or, you know, when I was in third grade I filled out a self-esteem coloring book and the cartoon toucan told me that I am a person of great worth and special brilliance. <coughs> there's not much left uh, to fall back on, uh, but an aggressive response. So I wonder if I wonder if that plays a role in there. I mean, there, there's also the uh, uh, the downside of the vulnerability is uh, the the increased reliance upon the opinions of others. If I'm um, basing my self worth on uh, what the other Twitter people are saying about me, uh, then I I had better respond strenuously to anybody who expresses an opinion that uh, is contrary to the general consensus in my echo chamber.
1: I think that's right. I mean,
0: one thing thing we we
1: shouldn't discount is also the way social media can give people a false sense of agency so that, you know, your... You know, the political season here in the United States, obviously very fraught, and, and so you're your posting these sort of urgent calls to action with respect to Trump, pro, against, whatever. And so so we, uh, I think we live in a world where yes, we we're very exposed, um, but we're also tempted to false sense of agency. But I want to go back to this idea of real accomplishments. I think there's danger there as well. Because the fact of the matter of is that most of us don't accomplish very much, <laughs> and and so there's a kind of righteousness peril in that view of um the immovable self. I think the immovable self has more to do with uh, having stable and solid loyalties. To be loyal to something that is worthy of your loyalty, I think, is uh, more fundamental than your accomplishments. Do you want to? One of the things that's really changed in the United States, I'm sure it's also true in Canada, is that our our moral culture has become so thinned down that it used to be the case that a man who eh, maybe didn't have such a great job, you know, uh, wasn't all that brilliant, um, but he was a good husband, dutiful, you know, coached a little league baseball team, went to chief, was a usher. When he dies, people say, there's a man, an honorable man, who led a good life. But we increasingly feel uncomfortable, privileging, if you will, the so language that's used. Any, anything is a better choice than another thing. And so we've stripped away these, what I would call these patterns of decency, have been stripped away in our, in our time. We don't publicly acclaim. We don't want to publicly acclaim the man who stayed inherited to inherit his wife for fifty years for fear of making the person who got divorced feel bad. Right. Or the person living in a non-traditional relationship we don't want them to feel that. So this non-judgmentalism, which is an imperative, certainly driven by elites, I would argue, that this non-judgmentalism actually strips away a basis for ordinary people to have the kind of self esteem that used to be, you know, readily accessible. And it's not and so much grand great
0: actions; again, it's the, the kind, of kind of stability of life
1: in accord with basic core convictions.
0: That, yeah, uh, I, th- I think you're onto something there. Uh. This doesn't get talked
1: about very much uh, in our time. And the person, the person who really, that really helped me on, on this is Mary Douglas, the great anthropologist uh, who wrote about uh, purity and uh, defilement and things like that. And her genius was to recognize the extent to which traditional cultures and so called modern cultures share when they don't. <laughs> and she saw the 1960s as a, actually a um, upper middle class rebellion against the requirement of maintaining social norms for everybody. And that really kind of helped me see. I think it's Matthew Crawford who comes up with this idea in his most recent book of cultural jigs. And a cultural jig, you know, a jig when you're woodworking is something that helps you cut the same piece in the same um, in the same way. And so a jig can make a kind of mediocre woodworker much better. And most of us are mediocre people, right? We, we lack the full virtue the wish we have when um, we make mistakes. But these cultural jigs helped us follow certain patterns of life. One of them was marriage stability of marriage, parenting, and uh, um, the, role of the relation of parents to children. And then also, some of it have to do school with school, the authority, the teacher. These are basic cultural jigs that have been very much eroded in our time. And so, one of the arguments I make in the book is that this... So we have, we've come to a point where we don't want cultural jigs because that's too conformist. Instead, everything has to be made in order. Everything has to be bespoke. And, you know, beast book, have, you ever, have you ever had a custom-made suit?
0: I have us? not, no.
1: Why not? They're, They're very expensive. They are pricey, yes. Yeah, and a bespoke morality turns out only to be accessible to people who are wealthy and at the top of society. Other people, you know, off the rack. Uh, and, you know, we so imagine if we had a moral culture where the only suits you could have were bespoke suits. Well, most of us would have to walk around looking like, like slobs. This is what happens. We get rid of this common moral culture that has strong norms, and ordinary people, people in the middle of society, have increasingly dysfunctional lives. And why? It's all for the sake of the well educated and well to, to be able to find their own way in life to have bespoke moral uh, views. Right. I've gotten in a lot of trouble in various public fora when I said, that gay marriage is a luxury gift for the rich that's going to be paid for by the poor. And people are outraged when I say that. Progressives are outraged when I say that. But I think it's true. Um, You know, I think it's true that you cannot disenchant and fundamentally revise norms about marriage without sending a very clear message that those norms are available to us to manipulate, mold, and remold as we see fit. And that, in other words, everything is bespoke.
0: Indeed. Yeah, and we uh, we can't uh, have much of a conversation about uh, human flourishing without uh, having something definite to say about the cultural conditions uh, that support and uh, shape and enable human flourishing. Now, your comment about um, this bespoke morality being suited only for uh, those who can afford it. Uh, it's a good transition to the next question that I had. One of the uh, uh, one of the recurring themes uh, in your book was this distinction uh, between uh, the cultural uh, fallout f- or, the, or the the consequences, I'll say, uh, f- of this shift for the affluent and the not so affluent. <coughs> so uh, you connect this to uh, the economic divisions uh, plaguing our society, connecting them to the cultural divisions. Uh, so uh, could you introduce our listeners to the towns of Belmont and Fishtown and right. sketch out your argument involving uh, how Belmont succeeds at Fishtown's expense?
1: Yeah, the, book, yeah, one of the most important books, books I've read in the last half a dozen years was Coming apart, apart by Charles Murray. It was published in 2012, 2012. and I and think it's a must-read must for people who want to understand the populist up- upsurge in the United States, States. and in that, that book, Murray Points out the ways in which the bottom third of American society, and he segregates and focuses only on white Americans, then he's wise because it's able to um, control for the fact that immigrants often bring a lot of social capital with them from the countries that they come from. So, and then African Americans in the United States have had a unique and painful experience because of slavery and then generations of, of. of uh, very and racial discrimination. So by focusing on white Americans. You can look at how, how people lived in the top 20%. He calls that Belmont. That's a fancy suburb outside of Boston. Versus Fishtown, that's the bottom third of white America, so-called working class here below white America. And he calls that Fishtown for a white neighborhood in Philadelphia that has been studied by sociologists because of this notorious pattern of intergenerational poverty. And so, um, so when we want to look at that those two cohorts. So they're just kind of names for the bottom third, Fishtown, the top of quintile, Belmont. And it's fascinating to look at stats on marriage rates, divorce rates, out of wedlock birth, labor force participation. Um, and other factors and see how the 1960s led to an uptick in social dysfunction across the board. But people in the top 20% of American society adjusted, and so divorce rates have fallen, and out of a lot of births for white Americans in the top 20% income brackets are vanishingly small. Meanwhile, out of a lot births for white Americans in the bottom third of society has exploded. So it's now at, a level of, it's at the same level it was in 1965 in the black community when, uh, when Daniel Patrick Moynihan published his report drawing attention to the crisis in the black community. And so, uh, in fact, uh, uh, Murray is pessimistic. He thinks that the bottom third of white America may be reaching a point where. They no longer have functional communities that can transmit any kind of essential cultural communities to their, uh, to their children. So, so I came out well. Now, of course, the rise of Trump, our mainstream media is now paying attention to the fact that we have drug overdose deaths in poor white communities in post industrial America. So, one, I was visiting a friend of mine in New Hampshire, and there have been a thousand. Uh, drug overdose deaths in New Hampshire, which is um, a population of a million, that means one out of every thousand residents of New Hampshire have died of a drug overdose death. So everybody in New Hampshire knows somebody, or at least knows somebody who knows somebody, who's died of a drug overdose death. That's astounding. Um, that That is really a sign of social pathology, on the same level as what afflicted uh, Russia after the collapse of the Soviet Union, and alcoholism was rampant, and there was a great deal uh, of social despair. And I look at that, and I say, now a lot of people say, well, income inequality is economic changes, and it is. But when we deregulate your economy and deregulate your moral culture at the same time, that's disastrous. And I think what is not talked about enough is the deregulation of our moral culture and that needs to be addressed much more thoroughly especially by christians you know we're not experts in economic policy but we do have some wisdom about moral life that we need to share with our fellow citizens and that's what i mean in my book about resurrecting the idea of christian society it's not taking control of leaders of power it's not you know, making everybody Christian. Instead, it's renewing our voice as a eleven in society to remind our fellow citizens of some of the most important aspects of Christian teaching. One of which is that we should give, um, we should be especially concerned about the poor, and not just that they would have adequate housing, healthcare, and um, and the necessities of life but also that they have access to a functional moral culture that they can, in which they can make sense of their
0: lives. So yeah, I'll, I'll put Coming Apart on uh, my reading list. Another book, too,
1: that is, is parallel is a book by Robert Putnam called Our Kids about the declining um, uh, the gap, opportunity gap, between, again, the top 20% and the bottom third. I think Putnam puts too much emphasis on of getting ahead economically. Um, but he's got very affecting interviews with young people, 18, 19, 20 year olds, who are growing up in, in these increasingly dysfunctional communities, white, black, uh, immigrant. And what is so just glaring in these accounts is that these young people feel that um, a life of stability. Where they can care for their children that they've had out of warlock. Just the stability to do that. And it's not just economic stability, it's also the moral stability to do that. Or to be to be decent, good neighbors. So they have an innate desire for the good life. Well, we would think of a good life. And they live in dysfunctional, disordered communities that make it very difficult to achieve that aspiration. And of course many of them like they uh, self-discipline to do it even if they did have better circumstances. And so this, that helped reinforce, I think, the Charles Murray observation that there's a moral inequality just as there's an economic inequality. And I don't mean that there are good people at the top of society, bad people at the bottom of society. Instead I mean that cultural conditions, stable families, functional communities, good schools, a kind of, you know, effective messaging to young people about what is right and what is wrong is present among upper middle class people and but not present uh, in the bottom half of society. And why is it not present? It's not present because we have mounted a systematic campaign against moral judgment. We tell, oh, you can't be judgmental. That's bad. You can't judge other people's way of life. So. Uh, We do that, but meanwhile we send subtle messages people like me from a well-to-do background, well-educated, people like me, we send messages to our kids, make healthy choices, you know, make healthy choices, wink, wink, nod, nod, Um, don't don't let drug use get out of hand, Um, practice safe sex, all this sort of thing. So we have all this messaging to uh, young people who who, if they're from an advanced background, gets filtered and reinforced. But for, you know, just these kind of complicated, euphemistic rules of life are not very effective and functional for people who, you know, whose parents are separated. Um, maybe they don't even know one of their parents. Uh, you know, they just strongly to find basic a basic orientation in the world. And we're giving them these super subtle messages about how to live their lives. Oh, solely for the purpose of not making anybody feel bad. As you can see, I get pretty worked
0: yeah. this. Yeah. Yep. Uh, so we call
1: on. it the war on the weak. Right. Uh, our the post 1960s moral culture in the West has prosecuted a war on the weak, and so we've purchased we've purchased the bounded. Uh, what was the term? It's the bounded liberated self.
0: Bounded masterful self. The bounded
1: self mastery, the bounded masterful self. We purchased bounded self mastery for the few, at the expense of the quality of life and the moral health of the man. Uh,
0: I, I I will add that to uh, I, I'll add that also to the list of uh, stuff to track down and read. Um, kind of along uh, similar lines, another one that I haven't read but I'm I've been hearing a lot about is J D Vance's Hillbilly Elegy. Uh, have you read that one? Is that uh, presenting yes. for, uh, some parallel messages there?
1: Some. I mean, it's uh, it's an
0: affecting
1: uh, memoir of a, of a of a of a fellow who who grew up in in um, in southern Ohio, um, hillbilly because his grandparents moved from Kentucky to find opportunity in the steel mills, of, uh, Ohio, whose mother is a uh, I think it would be accurate to say a victim of the 1960s, whose life was profoundly disordered. And he had to live through many, many boyfriends, and uh, drug, his mother's drug addictions. And, and it's, a, it's an affecting story. And I think it's, it's touched a to nerve in the United States because in the United States, we have, we have a lot of images of black poverty and social dysfunction. That's kind of a standard American way of thinking about, um, and we have a whole narrative about why that's the case, right? Racial discrimination ongoing, et cetera. And so that's the reason why. Well, here you have a young guy, he's white, whoa, whoa. A lot of people uh, in my social set had no idea that white people could be poorer like that. Uh, so, so, the reason why it's been a big, so popular during this current campaign season and when it's over, is that people see the book as providing a window on the world that uh, swung from Democrat to Republican and voted for Donald Trump. Uh, so I think it's worth reading. It's a quick read, as I say, it's very affecting. Uh, you know, it's not a book of social analysis; it's a book of narrative, so you can sort of see some of these social realities. So if you want a fish down, if you read Murray. And he gives you the statistical fish town. JD Vance gives you narrative, you know, the, uh, the story of one one guy, one young man's life in fish town. Okay. And
0: that's pretty useful. Sounds like it, yeah. Okay, uh, returning back to your book. Uh, so, uh, in your introduction, uh, you say that you say there is much talk among Christians these days about a pessimistic withdrawal from uh, public life, and then you go on to argue against that withdrawal. Uh, you're taking a shot at Rod Dreher here. Those who uh, like his Benedictine Who costume. knows what
1: Rod Dreher really means by the Benedictine Caution? His book's going to come out in a couple of months, and so we'll have a chance to get a better sense of what he thinks. Um, I, I do, do think he is certainly correct that we are kidding ourselves if we think we live in a Christian society in the sense that um, Christianity uh, is the default option for people. That's just not true. Uh, But it's also false to think that Christianity is receding in the United States. We can't speak about Canada. Um, Actually, the percent of the population that goes to church on any given Sunday is staying stayed the same for 50 years, around 25 to 35%. What's happening is that there's an increasing growth, rapid growth, of the percent of the population that says it has no religious affiliation, which is now greater than 20% of the population. So what we're seeing is a clash between, and the cultural wars in the United States are quite often a clash between what I call the committed core Christians, and this increasingly um, self-confident and aggressive group of the non religiously affiliated, And the people in the middle, the middle, 50%, 40% are very ill and don't know who to return. Uh, when Dreyer and I were young, uh, you know, that the Christian component set the tone for the whole nation. That's just not true anymore. And I think he's absolutely right warning people that you're uh, kidding yourself if you think you can continue with that way of um, thinking. Uh, now, I don't think he thinks withdrawal is popular so much as the, the imperative right now is to make sure that we renew uh, integrity in our own religious communities. And I agree with that. I think that's, if, if there are no Christian voices of integrity, there will be no Christian society, and my project has no life in it. But my book was meant to be, what I meant in this book to do is to provide a vocabulary and a way of thinking for those that committed core of Christians to re-engage in the public conversation with confidence, and also with a larger view than the standard cultural issues of um, sex and abortion and things like that, because um, I wanted to, uh, bring forward much larger principles and issues uh, for us to think about and engage with our fellow citizens. Um, and I I think that, uh, so do we still have a Christian society? In some sense, I think we do, despite the fact that Christian voices are being um, uh, fiercely contested uh, with by this uh, non-religious affiliated really group, what I call post-Christian loss, Culture, uh, um, which is my, my controversial way to put a stick in the eye of, uh, of the so-called multiculturalists, uh, which multiculturalists turn out to be mostly white people who are uh, promoting a certain vision of the future of, of society, not just in the United States but globally. Um, so so I, I but I, I I was in Europe talking about the book a few months ago. And Europeans, of course, you know, they're much more acute to the European Christians, their originality. And I say, yes, that's true, but no, it's not. The ancient Romans would have had no problem letting people drown in the Mediterranean who were trying to get to Italy. But Europe is uh, tying itself in in knots and really uh, risking a political crisis because it is a Christian society. And as a Christian society, it cannot just look uh, coldly at the weak and the vulnerable drowning in the oceans they try to, as refugees try to get to Europe, um, and I think that's a sign of the enduring influence of Christianity on Western culture and a certain true in the United States that, in many ways, as G.K. Chesterton said once, that the vices of the modern world are Christian virtues going mad. And I think there's a lot of progressivism, secular progressive. Progressivism that I don't like, which is really Christian virtue by man, a kind of compassion. I think we ought to have compassion towards our neighbors. We ought to be forgiving those who stumble and fall. Has transmuted itself into an ethos of non-judgmentalism that cannot bring itself to have to, to utter a strong moral judgment for fear that somebody might be hurt and feel excluded. I, I think, think that's, that's a Christian, Christian virtue you. gone at. Um, so so I, I think renewing really articulate, articulate, thoughtful, Christian voices in the public square could have a positive effect of calling some of our fellow citizens who aren't going to come to church to you know, adopt a, a saner, more viable form of progressiveness.
0: That's a good, uh, go Chesterton. That's a good way to put it. <laughs> I'm gonna keep that line. Yeah, uh, it's guess. a good one. It's about a lot of truth to it. It does. It explains a lot. I mean I think
1: a lot of progressive utopianism <laughs> is Christian eschatology that's been um, that you know has been made imminent.
0: Exactly. Yes. Uh,
1: you know, I think Christians rightly rebel against the limitations of the present moment, infected as we as all societies are by original sin. that we rightly rebel, that this world is not our present home. And I think that, that that's, that's good, that's healthy, that's part of the critical tradition of the West. But it can become uh, a kind of zealous and destructive revolutionary impulse if we don't keep in mind that, yes, we have, this is in our home, but ultimately the future is in God's hands, not in our hands. And if we, if the, if we think the future is in our hands, Ooh, it's very tempting to do bad things that good things might come. And St. Paul warns us, do not do evil, that good may come. And it's always a temptation when you when you when you when you no longer think that there's some providential hand. We have to always in our know, political lives be a little bit like Joe, you know, and be willing to admit and recognize that we do not see how the ways of God are going to be vindicated in and, and amidst all the compromises and failures of, of our, of our societies. Well, we've got to make while to our efforts
0: to try to do the best we can. Okay, uh, okay so turning to how we're going to do the best we can. Um, uh, I like a lot of the uh, the concepts that you're working with. I like, I like a lot of the big idea stuff. I'm, st- I'm trying to wrap my head around the practical applications of uh, no, no ideas. Idea. yeah. <clears throat> so you talk about uh, restoring stro- uh, strong moral norms, uh, you talk about building solidarity, cough cough Michael Maturin, cough cough, um, <laughs> opposing globalization, uh, promoting local institutions, defending marriage, supporting religious freedom, um, uh, on, on the other hand, so er- earlier, early on in the book you say that this is uh, quoting, uh, not about establishing Christianity but speaking up in the public square as Christians. Uh, but in a democracy, uh, ostensibly anyway, built on the idea of using persuasion in, in the public spa- square to shape public policy, uh, how are the two different? How do, how do we build a Christian society grounded in a Christian vision of the world, guided by Christian values, without it becoming a de facto establishment?
1: Well I think I there think are two things to say, to say here. here. The first is that I I, I think, think this notion of public reason is a myth. Uh, we, we should not we should, should not evaluate arguments by their provenance, but, but by their effectiveness. So, so if I yeah, I believe that I have and I've done it and university audiences in secular contexts made arguments about the nature of marriage that draw on the third chapter of the book of Genesis. Uh, You know, know, the the Bible resonates. That's why Martin Luther King Jr. was effective. He fused uh, biblical images with, um, with a lot of the mythology of the American founding. And it was very effective. And there's no reason why. Uh, Christians in the public realm can't draw upon unique vocabulary of the Bible or the theological resources of the Christian tradition. Uh, It's not coercive to offer someone a vision of the future that has uh, a biblical dimension to it. Uh, It's coercive to require a person to agree to it, but not to offer it in the public realm. So I think we need to overcome this false is, if you will, a kind of um, a, a kind of. It's almost as if there's some sort of fear of impurity that many secular liberals have that someone should speak religiously in the public realm. Need to overcome that. Just, just speak, speak, speak in a way that you think of your neighbors to make sense of it and what you think might help them form their moral and political judgments. Um, so I, I think that's that's the first thing that's important. The second thing is in the book. I try to distill, or bring forward some basic principles, or you might even just call them themes. I think one one of the themes that I bring forward is that a healthy society needs to encourage people to seek higher things. That the gods of health, wealth, and pleasure do not bring happiness. And that we need to have a society where people are encouraged to Consider the claims of art, where they're encouraged to enter into, uh, if they're so inclined, philosophical reflection, poetry, uh, or even um, patriotism as a kind of seeking of something higher than oneself to be loyal to. And that these are, these there's a pedagogy of assent that I think that we as Christians can encourage that. Obviously, we think that at the, at the top of the at the top of the ascent, at the top of the ladder of love, is God himself. Uh, but, you know, people are in a lot different places. For some people it's just recognizing that, you know, hey, um, the good of the family is more important than my good. Or the good of my community is more important than my good. Or that, you know, my country really is a flawed but nevertheless noble, wonderful thing that I should cherish. Um, or that having conversations means so much. We have a hard time, it's the point now, where our politicians speak of as if the only things that really matter in life are the things that we can buy and sell. And we need to encourage our fellow citizens that no, the most important things in life are the things that you cannot buy and you cannot sell. Um, And and I think Christians could... I mean, worship is the ultimate waste of time. It serves no utility, uh, you know. So you can say that you know psychological studies do show that actually it does have positive effects for people. Uh, but uh, uh, be that as it may, that's not why you're going to church. You're not going to church so that you will feel better about life. You go to church so that you can render unto God uh, the due you owe know, him of, of uh, uh, praise and worship, and to enjoy uh, His presence.
0: Right, and we even have uh, decades of research showing that when that is the motivation um, f- for for going to church and for worshiping, uh, if the motivation is that it makes me feel good or that I benefit from it, uh, that kind of religious orientation is associated with a whole host of negative outcomes. That's where we see the highest prejudice scores, that's where we hi- we, we see uh, quite a lot of emotional dysfunction uh, and uh, uh, personality problems, uh, relationship problems, uh, it, and it, it is when uh, there is this intrinsic orientation, when uh, the point of going to church is the actual point of going to church, uh, that w- we start seeing the beneficial effects. And, and you're, you're entirely right. <coughs> uh, we have to look at uh, the goal, we have to look at what we're trying to accomplish, uh, and what, uh, what what sort of telos we appeal to uh, when we're making our judgments, and But But it's not really going to work to try to uh, get people to uh, see other things as better than themselves in the name of their own health and wealth.
1: Right. No, but think about how our governments now approach approach education and educational reform. You know, it's all about outcomes. Oh, yeah. It's it's all about how, oh, we've got to prepare young people to compete in a post-industrial, knowledge-based economy, or, you know, it's all about upward mobility. And that's what I don't like about the Putnam book. And I think that, no, as Christians, we should be entering into the, you know, our local school boards or whatever position we have and say, no, there are certain things, we, there are gifts that young children need to be given. And those gifts are, whether it's great literature or whether it's the gift of of uh, 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 an open discussion that goes nowhere without a, sp- a particular ball in line. But other than the truth, uh, we, we, we are, we're in a bad situation in our societies. So we live in what I call an empire of utility. And I think one of the Christian society is not an empire of utility. Uh, a Christian society can have Jews. A Christian society can have Muslims. A Christian society can have atheists. It can have Platonists. It can have Aristotelians and Kantians. But well, a Christian society cannot be an empire of utility. That's the antithesis of Christian society.
0: Hang on. You mean to say that the purpose of education is not necessarily solely the forming of economic agents? That's crazy talk.
1: <laughs> I know. Well, I mean, your ability to mock it so succinctly is a sign of how pervasive that way of thinking is.
0: Yeah.
1: And, you know, it's such a, it, it, it's such a simple thing, but it's so, it's so huge. Um, so, uh, and again, I think that this is a point where Belmont winds up church-shrifting Fishtown, because the people who live in Belmont, yes, they put a lot of emphasis on on the economic success of their kids, but they typically supplement their children's formation with things that have a more noble purpose, and uh, and meanwhile. Uh, they, when they enter in public discussions about the purposes of public education, it's exactly as you described. It's preparing people to be effective economic agents in a globalized post-industrial economy. Make me puke. Yeah. Uh, you know, um, I mean, this is one of the things that I think uh, is one of the... So, you know, back to the, health, the gods of health, wealth... And pleasure, mm-hmm. uh, people do not want to actually live for those things. Th- they want them, and we all want them, of course. Sure. Pleasure properly properly pursued is a good thing. Uh, wealth, more is better than, than less for most of us, not always for all of us. And health is an intrinsic good, but these are not final goods. No. And they're certainly not goods in themselves uh, that can sustain uh, a happy life. Um, and I think, so seeking higher things, I think, is a very, and also promoting solidarity is another thing. If the purpose of education is to prepare young people to be effective economic agents in a competitive uh, free economy, blah, 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 well, then aren't they, aren't they really, at the end of the day, all competitors with each other? So what's the, what's the glue that's holding them together? What, what, are they, what are they doing shoulder to shoulder? rather than competing face-to-face. Um, I think uh, people drive a tremendous satisfaction from being involved in a common project towards a common end. And that's one reason why, actually, you know, people often, most people, do, I'm not sure if it's true, but many people, perhaps most people actually like their jobs. And they like their jobs. If it's a well-run company, they like their jobs because, hey, I'm contributing to a common project. And you may, if you know, the Marxist is going to say what we're well, being a dupe, the common project is profits for the shareholders, but I think human beings are, we just want to be part of something productive, we want to be part of something that's building something, a future, uh, we want to be part of something that's lasting, um, and I think uh, part of our the crisis of our age is our political leaders, I think this is one of the in populism has gained such traction, not just in the United States, but in Europe, is that people feel less and less that there's anything solid and elastic that um, they can be loyal to. And they distrust their leadership, in part because their leadership has been telling them for a long time that there's nothing real in the world except economic interests.
0: Well, speaking of the populist turn, at the time of this recording, uh, we are just a handful of weeks after the victory of Donald Trump in the U.S. presidential election. And listeners, I've just got to tell you, I did not see that coming. Um, I've been reading uh, First Things uh, columns for a while. And uh, uh, as another side, say hi to Dave Coises for me. I used to teach at Redeemer. All right. Had an office just down the hall from his. Uh, and. Recently discovered and started listening to the First Things podcast, which uh, has pointed out uh, to me how uh, woefully inadequate my exposure to great literature is, uh, listening to some of your uh, literary discussions. Um, and uh, I've I've seen in uh, some of the columns and uh, heard in the podcast uh, your in some circles controversial uh, decision to publish. Most circles. What? Most circles. Most circles. Okay. I'll There's nothing about Trump.
1: Trump, is <laughs> not
0: <talking> about Trump. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Yes. Uh, so now, now that he's won, now that the Trump apocalypse is upon us, does this change? Does this change any of the arguments that you put forward in your book? Uh, what do you see as possibilities uh, for rebuilding uh, the idea of a Christian society in a Trump administration?
1: Right. That's a great question. And. So hard to answer. Um, I would say that the book, the book is meant to address uh, cultural cultural criticism of our present postmodern moment in conjunction with articulation of principles to guide us forward. And I wouldn't change anything I wrote in order to talk about Trump. I think it's you know the political is downstream from the cultural. And so, I think Trump is a symptom, rather than the cause of any particular changes in our society. His shocking rise as a political figure, I think, vindicates my social analysis, uh, that people have no solid place to stand in in the post-industrial, globalized West, not just America, but elsewhere. And uh, because they have no place to stand, they're vulnerable. And in their vulnerability, they want something solid and enduring. And so Trump's blustering and sometimes crude patriotic sentiment, if we, you know, his famous line, rather have a country or we don't, that this blustering uh, patriotism is reassuring to people, is, is, um, is aggressive sometimes crude blows against the mainstream media, it is appreciated by people because they feel that that media underlines them rather than, rather than buttresses, their attempts to lead a good life. So I think these factors tend to vindicate the book's, um, the book's analysis. Uh, what is possible in the Trump world? This is a really open question. We know so little about what is happening, so I'd rather speak more broadly about the populist upsurge in the West. Um, It was just, I think, uh, on Sunday, two days ago, that the Italians delivered a devastating defeat to uh, Matteo Renzi in in his referendum to try to change the Italian constitution, part of the same wave that brought us Brexit, and to a certain extent, Trump. We'll see how this unfolds. But I think, for Christians, the we, we need to um, be an alternative voice to the political establishment. The political establishment believes that um, the strong sentiments that have led to the election of Trump are a function of xenophobia, racism, or some other pathology, economic uh, anxiety. And I don't want to say that these are not factors, but... I interpret the populist moment as a desperate attempt to regain some sort of what I would call a metaphysical foundation for public life. And this could become very perverse and very dangerous, as we know from the 1930s. But the solution is not to try to disenchant that impulse or stein it. Instead, it's to propose to people a fuller, uh, both more humane and more divine strategy for finding a stable place to stand. in this world of flux, uh, that's been exacerbated by our economic system of uh, of endless um, of ever greater circulation of of economic circulation of goods and people and ideas and cultures. So, uh, so my so my advice to, to listeners is to be sober-minded about the populist moment, recognize its threats, but don't throw it, don't don't throw your lot with the secular disenchanters who want to reduce all human impulses towards solidarity to some base and evil impulse. Um, we have to find a way to talk about solidarity and our unity, whether it's national or ethnic, in ways that are humane and uh, and open, rather than, rather than brutal on the one hand, or, as I, I fear our establishment wants to do, to simply deny that there's any, any legitimacy to those impulses.
0: Okay. 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 All right. Okay, listeners, uh, thank you for uh, taking the time to uh, be with us and uh, listen in on our conversation. I've been speaking with Rusty Reno. The book is Resurrecting the Idea of a Christian Society. Click on the link on, in our show notes, buy a copy of the book, read the book, join the conversation. Comments can be posted at the website, ChristianHumanist.org, or find us on Facebook, Christian Humanist. The Christian Humanist Humanist Profiles is part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Our audio editor is Britt Stack. And I am Charles Hackney, wishing you all well.